0: Welcome to the Well Community Church Podcast. For more information on us and our mission to help people connect to God and to each other in every neighborhood, check us out at thewellcommunity.org or on our app, The Well Friends. Hey, uh, if you are a guest here with us, uh this evening welcome to the well my name is brad i get the privilege of hanging out with you here tonight and as josh mentioned you know the purpose of our church has been for many years now to help people connect to god and to each other in every neighborhood and uh, in that one of the things we've been committed to is the handling of the word of god we just believe that this bible this book is inspired by god it's profitable for teaching reproof correction and training and so we just kind of pick a book and work our way through it and so we're launching a new series here uh, coming out into the new year in the book of Joshua, but in typical well fashion, last week we had you opening to the book of Genesis, this week the book of Exodus. So, if you were with us last week, uh, we just acknowledge the fact that if you've ever been to a movie with somebody who had a little backstory, uh, the movie to them, because of the backstory, meant a little bit different, something different to them. Maybe it was funnier to them. Maybe they got a little bit more out of it because you, by lacking context, just didn't quite know what you were experiencing. And we felt like if we turn to Joshua chapter 1 and start there, some people just don't have context. And so we just want to get a little bit of the backstory. Last week we did uh, the book of Genesis that really covered a couple of things. One, we showed the attributes of our God and the fact that the God of the Bible is by his very nature terrifying. Uh, But we also saw that his character is good, and those two things seem to live in a little bit of a contrast. And so we said, uh, to quote C.S. Lewis, our God is definitely not safe, but he is good. And so we walked through that. We also saw that he is faithful, keeps his promises. And he, by his grace, chose a people, starting by a guy named Abram in in Genesis chapter 12, called Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and his son Jacob, and his son Judah, and built a people from them to be his special chosen ones, called Hebrews in your Bible early on, then called Jews, then called, of course, uh, the people of Israel. Now, they end up at the end of the book of Genesis in Egypt, and that's where we left them last week. But that's not where they stay. So now when we get to the book of Exodus, the people of God are in Egypt, and uh, Joseph, who was sort of the man on the inside helping them, dies. And if you look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it says that a new king now arises over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So as you can imagine, guests, 70 of them initially that went to Egypt, now... Under the uh, sort of protection of Joseph, Joseph uh, is now gone and a new king arises who doesn't know Joseph. And so things go from uh, guest to slave very, very quickly. The people of God are gonna be in Exodus now, uh, or in, in Egypt rather, for 430 years so they had to have been wondering at some point has god forgotten about us Um, and things as you see early in the book of exodus go from bad to worse look at verse 15 of chapter 1 what happens is that the king of egypt is nervous that these people are uh, growing large families and will someday overtake them and so he gives the green light in verses 15 and 16 for infanticide and he wants all of the male uh, boys that are born to be killed And the midwives in verse 17 of chapter one, though feared God. They didn't do as the king commanded and they let the boys live. And so in verse 22 of chapter one, uh, Pharaoh then expands the circle. And he says to any citizen, if they see a Hebrew boy born, they are to throw it into the Nile. And so that's what was happening on the regular. And in chapter two of Exodus, there is a family who gives birth to a son and uh, the mom, I don't know how, keeps the baby quiet for three months. I don't know how many of you have had a child, but how how do you keep an infant quiet? But they, they pull it off, because they know if the neighbor's here, kid's gonna get thrown into the Nile. And so somehow, by God's grace, that that happens for three months, but then there's nothing more that they can do, and so they uh, they send the boy into the Nile in a basket, hoping that somehow he will be protected. And by God's grace, he was. He ends up getting picked up by a woman in the household of Pharaoh himself. The woman grabs this boy out of the water, uh, which in Hebrew means Moses. grabs him out, and so his name is Moses, and he's going to now be a very interesting deliverer, born a Hebrew raised in the very household of Pharaoh, which means he has access. He has access to Pharaoh and access to those that are in authority. And uh, some years later, if you uh, look at chapter two, verse 11, there's a struggle that's happening between the Egyptian overlords and his Hebrew uh, families, kin, if you will, and uh, something goes on and he uh, doesn't like the way that his people are being treated, so he, uh, he kills this guy and then buries him in the sand. And one of the things that you're gonna see about the people of God, and truthfully it's, it's true in our day too, um, when, when our flesh takes over, it usually doesn't end up well. Because our, our flesh comes out as um, you know, anger, and violence, and things like that. And, and very rarely, if ever, have you said something in anger and thought, wow, that was really honoring to the Lord, you know? that was really helpful to my marriage. And, and in this situation, it's, it's not much different. He kills this guy, and uh, it doesn't go well for Moses. If you look at verse 15, Uh, Pharaoh, of course, hears about it and wants to uh, take Moses' life. So Moses has to flee. And one of the things Moses, as uh, someone who's now exploring what life is like lived with God, he's going to have to learn to trust God, not his flesh. And uh, years later, uh, what's going to happen in chapter three of Exodus is he will have an experience that in some ways uh, marks not only his life, uh, but the life of all those who will come from his people, his ethnic connection there. And it says in verse two, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold the bush was with fire and yet the bush was not consumed. So this is not somebody threw a cigarette out of their car off of 41. This is something very, very different. The bush is not being consumed and yet he sees this fire and so Moses turns aside, in fact in verse three is compelled to, I must, Turn aside, see this marvelous sight while the bu- why the bush is not being burned up. And the Lord saw that he had turned aside and looked, and God said to him from the midst of the bush, Moses, Moses, which had to be terrifying, by the way. And he says, here I am. And he says, do not come near, the voice from the bush says. Do not come near, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father. Now listen to this. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So this burning bush experience, the voice of God speaking from the bush, connects now Moses back to his heritage, his real heritage. Not his step family he grew up in, but his, his Hebrew background. And connects the dots back there, and uh, S- Moses uh, hid his face because he was afraid to look at God, which as we talk about, again, the attributes of God, when we see God for who he is, a proper theology proper, a a biblical one, God is uh, terrifying. And I want you to notice in verse seven, these people now for 430 years had been wondering about the promises given to Abraham because remember, God promised Abraham land and a family tree Uh, and that they would uh, be a blessing to the world. And yet here they are, 430 years still in Egypt. Verse seven, the Lord uh, said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people that are in Egypt. I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering, so I have come down to deliver them. Do you see the proximal nature of our God? That he uh, saw, He heard, he was aware, and he is now moving to deliver. It's not as if God didn't have the information 429 years ago. God knew exactly where they were. He allowed this to go on for a couple of reasons we'll talk about here in a little bit. And then he says in, as verse 8 continues, I will now deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. I will bring them into the land, the good land, the spacious land, the land flowing with milk and honey to the place of... All of the people that are living in the land God promised Abraham. The Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression to which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now Moses asks a great question in verse uh, 11. Moses says to God, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Because that's what the Lord in this context tells him. You go to Pharaoh. He goes, who am I? Well, the answer in verse 12 is, well, nobody, dummy, it's not about you. It's not you, verse 12, it's me. I will go with you, and this will be a sign for you. You're you're gonna be the mouthpiece. That's the thing about walking with the Lord, by the way. One of the things that is great to understand is when you trust in Jesus Christ, we're crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who lives, it's Christ. He is the strength. He is the power. He is the courage. And uh, so in verses 13 and following, Moses says to God behold uh, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I'm going to say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they're going to say to me what is his name what should I tell them remember at this point there is no Bible these people have no idea who God is. They've seen the God of the Egyptians, but they don't know who the one true God is. What do I say his name is? What shall I tell them? And in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, that is fascinating for a number of reasons. When you read in the New Testament, Jesus is going to make seven statements that are what's called I am statements, all of which are claiming a connection all the way back to the God of the burning bush in Exodus 3. He's also gonna make a statement in the Gospels, Jesus does in uh, John chapter 8. He says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And the religious leaders were like, how is that the case You know, we know how long you've been alive. And he says, no, no, even before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be God in as clear a way as possible. Well, in chapter five of Exodus, Moses now approaches Pharaoh. We're not gonna get into the weeds of the story. Um, Just by summary, it it does not go well. Uh, Moses says, let my people go worship. Pharaoh says, "Uh, no. And so then now in chapters seven through 12, Some of the most catastrophic text in your Bible, it's the plagues. Now what God begins to do uh, with the people that are in Egypt, specifically dealing with Pharaoh, is he begins to systematically decimate uh, their deities, because every one of the plagues was a direct affront to a deity that they worshiped, whether it was the Nile or Pharaoh himself or the sun. And he's going to complete, God will completely decimate their religious system, but he also completely destroys their economy. Not only that, but probably three quarters of their population is killed in the midst of the plagues. This, there's awful, and then there's this. This encounter with God in Egypt will be used in your Old Testament over and over and over and over to explain how terrifying God is. The people of God will say, our God is terrifying and he is powerful. They go, what do you mean by that? Well, let's talk about Egypt, and they just walk through what God did to the people there. Now, he unleashes fury uh, on the people of uh, Egypt, and the final uh, plague is a death angel that kills every firstborn in the city that doesn't take the blood of an innocent animal and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the house. Interesting, it's kind of the shape of a cross if you want to lean into it that way. Without the shed blood of something innocent being in your place, uh, the death angel would take your firstborn. If the blood was there, they passed over, which is where we get the idea of Passover and even communion that we're gonna enjoy together as a community here in just a little bit. If you flip a couple chapters forward to chapter 14, Pharaoh is uh, stubborn throughout all of the plagues. No, 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 you can't let him go, you can't let him go. Finally, he's like, okay, take him. And so they leave, and then pride sets in. And so as the people of God leave Egypt, they're heading now for this promised land, but Pharaoh has a change of heart. And Pharaoh rallies whatever troops he can, and he's coming behind them. So here you've got now Men, women, and children fleeing Egypt. And I say fleeing. They weren't running. They didn't need to run. They literally looted the homes by, by their request of the Egyptians. Here, take this, take this, take this, just leave. And so they're, they're leaving, but you've got men, women, and children. They are not soldiers. They are not fighters. Uh, they're at best uh, menial, uh, manual labor workers, right? They have no skills in terms of war. And now coming behind them on chariots is Pharaoh and his army, and they come to the Red Sea. And they're stuck in the front. They've got mountains on the side. They've got chariots coming from behind. They're in deep trouble. What are they gonna do? And if you look at chapter 15, verse one and following, Moses and the sons of Israel sang a song to the Lord. uh, And they said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted because the horse and the rider has been hurled into the sea. What God told Moses is put your staff into the water, the water split. And it's worth noting that it says that they pass on dry ground. And as they pass to the other side, Uh, Moses puts the staff in the water again. The the waters now come back and destroy the entire army of Egypt. And so the song continues. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will now praise him. Uh, My father's God, I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. By the way, Psalm 105 gives you a wonderful Old Testament overview that talks about all of these plagues and this Red Sea crossing as a sign of God's uh, terrifying attributes, if you want to look at that maybe at another time. Now, in verse or chapter 14, the Hebrews are delivered from Egypt, and they come uh, to the Red Sea. They pass through now the Red Sea, and uh, the, the challenge, though, is what comes next, and what comes next is God is going to take them now over to the, to the land. But before they get to the land, they're going to end up in the wilderness for a number of years. In Exodus chapter 20, flip there just for a moment. In chapter 20, God is going to answer the question of what is the character of my God? Because if you recall at this point, there is no Bible. So they don't even know really who God is other than a couple of promises that he's given. And in Exodus 20 is where you're going to get the uh, Ten Commandments the beginning of the revelation of who God is. He says, have no other gods before me, have no images other than, or have no images, period. Uh, don't use my name in vain, and then remember the Sabbath, honor your parents, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, no coveting. That, that's kind of the, the nature of God. God's saying, if you're gonna live in relationship with me, this is who I am, and because you're an image bearer of me, this is how I want you to live, and God reveals his character. And in chapters 21 through 23, some more laws, if you will, of how do we interact together? How do we live as a community? What does it mean for us to be the people of God, etc.? And then the people begin to ask the question, well, in, in Egypt, there were all these gods and there were all these temples. Does our God have a temple? And the answer is uh, no. If you look at chapters 25 through 27 of Exodus, there's not a temple. That's what's called a tabernacle which was basically a tent structure, like bargain party rental, but that it would go with you. And so you would set up the tent and you would worship God, and then when it was time to go, you would pack it up and you would move. It was the idea that he didn't need a temple like the other gods, he was with you. And where you moved, he moved. And when he stopped, you stopped. And uh, so the question then would be asked after all of these laws were given, probably similar to what you would ask, the, the law of God was never meant to save, not even in Moses' day. When you blow it, because I don't know about you, how how are you doing with, with lying or stealing or coveting or murder? Have you ever one time even thought about those things? If you have, then you've sinned and you've broken God's law. What do you do with that? Well, that's why you have the book of Leviticus. The book most people stop their reading plan through the year at. Most people crank through Genesis, crank through Exodus, they get to Leviticus and they are out. It's a beautiful book and here's why. It's about the holiness of God. And so the first multiple chapters are about burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, even the day of atonement. Don't get lost in the weeds as to what do all of those mean. All of those are provisions God has given his people that he knows you're going to blow it. And when you blow it, offer a sacrifice. When you sin, bring a sacrifice, because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. We learned that last week all the way back in Genesis 3. That's the pattern of dealing with sin. You can't cover it, you can't medicate it, you can't hide it, the only way to deal with sin is something innocent has to die. Now thanks be to God, we're not bringing goats to church today. Why is that? Well, because the Lamb of God, Jesus, our Christ, died in our place, not to simply cover sin, which is what the day of atonement and all of these offerings were. No, no, he dealt with the root issues and he removes it. In fact, when John sees Jesus, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this was God's way of saying, look, I, I, I know you're going to mess up and I get it. And so here's what you do when you do. And that's the book then of Leviticus. Now they're in this wilderness. How long does it take to go from the Nile Delta region where they cross the Red Sea into the Promised Land? Less than two weeks. It's not a long journey. That doesn't mean it's an easy journey because you're, you're crossing what the Hebrew Bible calls the Yeshimon. There's the uh, Yeshimon, there's the Siyah, and there's the Midbar. Three different words for desert. They get increasingly awful. Yeshimon literally is translated in your Bible the wasteland. There is nothing, it's worse than Barstow. There is nothing. There's not, a, there's not a Johnny Quick, there's not a water faucet, there is nothing. And so they're, they're wandering through or going to pass through now the Yeshimon. Now turn to the book of Numbers. If you take the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers, if you want to write next to the um, name of the book in your Bible there, the title of it, just write chastening or discipline because that's what the book of Numbers is. I'll give you a principle. It was relatively easy for God to get the people out of Egypt. The heavy lifting is getting Egypt out of the people. The problem was not the exodus. The problem is they still have Egypt in them. And when I say Egypt, I don't mean ethnic Egypt. I I mean the idolatry of Egypt, the the sins of Egypt, the the Egypt that lived apart from God. And and God had to deal with that. And so that's the book of Numbers. There's two really sections to the book of Numbers. The old generation, chapters 1 through 25, and then the new generation in 26 through 36. Well, why is there that type of division? Well, turn to chapter 13. In chapter 13, the people of God are literally at the southern border of the land. They've they've journeyed their 2 weeks as it should have taken and they're at the southern border and they decide to send spies into the land in chapter 13 to see how it looks. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Numbers chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses and he said, send out for yourselves men that they might spy out the land of Canaan that that I'm going to give you to the sons of Israel. You shall send men from each of your father's tribes, um, everyone a leader among them. And so sure enough, they do. They raise up all these dudes and you'll see all the names there they send them in. Problem is, these guys are chicken. So in verse 25, they return from spying out the land Uh, after the end of 40 days and they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of Israel that were in the wilderness and they they brought back word to the congregation about the fruit of the land here's some fruit of the land we've got some grapes and figs and um, pomegranates and whatnot and then in verse 27 um, we went into the land where you sent us it certainly does flow with milk and honey and this is its fruit however verse 28 The people who live there are strong. Their cities are fortified. They're very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Who were they? Some family tree of like Shaquille O'Neal's, just giants of some sort, big dudes. There's the descendants of Anak there. The uh, Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. It's Opposite of the Jebusites and, or uh, excuse me, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites. they are all living there. They're all big, strong, tough guys. You can see them starting to panic a little bit. All of these people are there. And in verse 30, Caleb, the student named Caleb, interrupts and he quiets the people down. He goes, "What? By uh, we should by all means go in and take possession of the land. We will surely overcome it because, like two weeks ago, God destroyed the entire nation of Egypt." Like, do you guys minute Like five minutes ago, we saw Pharaoh and his armies drowning in the, in the Red Sea, and now you guys are worried about a guy who can dunk? Like, what, what's happening? How quickly you forgot to trust God? Well, in verse 32, they gave a bad report. The land that they said they were going to spy out is going to devour its inhabitants. They saw men there of great size. There were even those that are called the Nephilim, which is a a character that we saw in Genesis chapter six that caused the flood, and they're like, it's basically their version of the boogeyman. The boogeyman's there. There's no way we, and they they literally panic. And in fact, bottom of verse 33, we would become like grasshoppers uh, in their sight. And so, thankfully, in chapter 14, two guys uh, in down in verse six, two guys step up. Joshua, whose book we're going to start next week, and Caleb. And they, they tear their clothes in shame, and they just say, guys, w- trust God. We can take the land. But unfortunately, the crowds prevail. And so uh, in verse 11 of chapter 14, God is frustrated with his people, as you can imagine. And he says, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I've performed in their midst? That's interesting. You know, it's easy to read stories like this. You're like, boy, these people, these people are stubborn. These people have hard hearts. These people don't see how good God has, has been. And then I just wonder, are, are we too far from that even ourselves? And uh, the Lord in verse 26 of chapter 14 says to Moses and Aaron, how long will I bear with this evil congregation and all this grumbling against me? I have heard their complaint of these people that they make against me. And so basically he says, because this older generation, is grumbling and complaining and failing to trust they are all going to die in the wilderness. And so this entire generation is condemned to a slow death of wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Meanwhile, those who are under 20 years old are going to be raised up. They're the ones that are given the promise in this text to go ahead and enter the land. So two weeks turns into 40 years for two primary reasons. One, to allow the older generation to pass away, those who did not have faith too, to get Egypt out of the people. And so God has to teach them to trust him. Just a side note by the way, the people are gonna wander in the wilderness, where is that? That's, that's north of um, where the Naya Delta region is, just across the Red Sea, it's south of the land. There are three primary trade routes that connect Egypt through the land of Canaan all the way up into Damascus and then further on into India, etc. Those three trade routes, one goes along the coastline, one goes along the center of the land, up and down over the mountains, called the Way of the Patriarchs, the other is called the King's Highway that goes down the Jordan River. What's the point? They all pass through the desert where these people are wandering for 40 years and then go to Egypt. Why is that important? So play this out, you're a trader. You're trading silk from India, you want spices from Egypt, so you go to Egypt, to go to the local spice shop and it's destroyed and the entire nation is destroyed and three quarters of its population is destroyed and its economy is destroyed. You're like, what happened? And they go, well, the, the God of the Hebrews sent these plagues and it, and it completely destroyed us. You're like, wow, that's awful. So you scrap up what you can, you head north and you see this cloud in the wilderness This cloud of shade that follows these people by day and a pillar of fire that follows these 2.5 or so million people in the desert follows them by night. And you go, who are those people? They go, well, that's the Hebrews. The people that just destroyed Egypt? Yeah, that's them. Then you end up going into the land. You go to a city like Jericho and you go, dude, have you heard what happened to Egypt? No, what happened? I just want my spices. They don't have any spices. Man, the whole thing is destroyed. It's like post-apocalyptic zone there. And they go, what are you talking about? Well, the God of the Hebrews. Who's the God of the Hebrews? I don't know, but he just killed everybody. Well, where are the people now? They're in the desert. Why are they still in the desert? It's been 40 years. I don't know. They're just circling. (laughs) Well, are they lost? I don't know if they're lost. Maybe they're waiting for the right opportunity. Well, if they destroyed them, when are they going to destroy us? Because Egypt was the most powerful nation in the land. There was no one that could compare with them. Feel it. If you're living in the land, you are terrified because you're getting word from the trade routes that those people are still there. And it's not like it happened yesterday. It's been 40 years. So you know the story. And what's interesting, we're going to meet a gal here in a couple of weeks named Rahab. And what Rahab is going to talk about are the plagues in the Red Sea that happened 40 years previous. She's going to remember the stories, and her heart melts like wax. And so this is the backdrop of what's taking place. Now the other thing is this, they are in the wasteland. The question you're asking if you live in this region is, if I need to go from point A to point B, where's the water? W- where do I get shade? Where can I get provisions? We do the same thing. We're, we're driving from point A to point B. If you drive a Tesla, you're definitely doing that. I'm driving from point A to point B, where's the charging stations? And you're thinking about it ahead of time or you're gonna, we're gonna make fun of you when we drive by, okay? You've got to plan. In this, you've got a plan or you get embarrassed. They got a plan or they all die. So they knew okay, if I need to get from here to there, it's not a straight line. The water's over there. So I go here first, and then I'm going there, and then I'm going there. And so they know the routes. Now, they also know you can't survive for three days in this desert without water, probably two days because it's so stinking hot. It's Fresno hot with no shade. There's not a tree in, this, in the Yeshimon, there's nothing. The question they're asking is, how have these people survived with kids for 40 years? There's no water out there. There's no food out there. There's no shelter out there. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse five. Not only has God provided for them, every single day. Deuteronomy 29 verse 5 says, God speaking, I have led you these 40 years in the wilderness, and your clothes haven't worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off of your feet. Not only has God provided food and water and shelter, God is also miraculously like their clothes have not even gotten old after 40 years. I don't know quite how that happens, but the point is if you're living in the land of Canaan, you're like, how are they surviving?" And you realize the God of the Hebrews may be terrifying, but I think he's also good. He's taking care of them. And so now, during these 40 years, the old generation passes away. Now the new generation wasn't there when Moses in Exodus 20 went to the uh, Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments. They, they were kids. I mean, they were, they, were, they were drawing in the sand while Moses is talking about his law. So they didn't have the law. So after the book of uh, Leviticus, you have the book of Numbers and then finally the book of Deuteronomy. What does Deuteronomy mean? Well, what's a duet? Two, right, where two people are singing. So duet means two. Namos means law. It's the second law. So if you've ever read Exodus 20 and following and then you read Deuteronomy, you're like, I think I already read this. You, you did, What you read in Exodus was given to the older generation who now died, and what you're reading in Deuteronomy is God saying, I wanna make sure you kids understand this from me. This is who I am. So the book of Deuteronomy is a reminder of what the older generation had been given, a second law. Now, the exploits of the Lord, as we've heard, are not simply folklore. This generation is not gonna be able to just rest on God's reputation Uh, this desert route that they are on uh, is going to lead them through some formidable foes, and they're going to have to learn to grow up real quick. If you have uh, your Bible, Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. What's happening now is they have come up from Egypt to the southern portion of the land. The Dead Sea is there, and they don't want to go to the western part of the Dead Sea uh, for fear that they'll get destroyed because the Giants live there, so they go the other side and they, they simply ask in chapter 21 for permission of the king of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Dead Sea, modern day Jordan, by the way. Can, can we just pass through? We don't, we don't need any gas, we, we don't need any money from you, we don't need anything. We're, we're just passing through, can we just pass through? And uh, this guy, his name's Sihon, the king of the Amorites, ambushes them in verses 21 and following. And uh, he rallies all of his armies against him or against them. And so these people have the first battle that they've ever had to fight and they defeat this guy. Well, they keep going up the Jordan River to what's called Bashan. Bashan, you know it is Golan Heights. It's on the eastern part of the uh, Sea of Galilee. They go up to the Golan Heights. There's another king up there who also ambushes them. His name is Og. And what's significant about that is they have now defeated two major kings in battle that were on the other side of the Jordan. So as the people that are living in Canaan, Jericho by way of example, it it adds another um, thing that they should fear to this people that are now at their doorstep. They've defeated Egypt and destroyed everything. They've crossed the Red Sea miraculously. They've survived in the wilderness miraculously. They just took out the neighbors of Sihon and Og, these two kings and their kingdoms. And so these people are not just, you know, menial labor people. These people just destroyed kingdoms and now they're six miles from Jericho and they're looking at it. And Jericho can see them. And the stage is set at this point for the final now conquering of the land. If you're a geography geek, uh, Numbers chapter 33 would be a great text for you to read. Have you ever pulled up a Google map and you said, I want to go from here to there? And then you say, well, I also want to go there and then there. And you just add some stops and it'll create the route for you. Numbers chapter 33 is the Google map with all the spots. It shows you where they stopped after the Red Sea crossing, all the way here to the land. If you're into that, you can pull out a map in the back of your Bible, you can trace it out, that, that gives you the whole thing. But where we leave them now is uh, right at the border of the land, but before they can go in, there's gotta be a leadership change. See, one of the things that happened, unfortunately, is in the midst of all of the wandering, Moses uh, lost his cool, acted in anger, disregarded the Lord's commandments, and way back in Numbers chapter 20, Uh, dishonored God, didn't treat God as holy, Moses is out. Moses will not, he will not enter the land. Uh, But what God does by his grace at the end of the book of Deuteronomy is takes Moses up on the top of Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo is a mountain in the mountains of Jordan. You can see it actually from the Israeli side, big old mountain over there. And uh, right at the northern part of the Dead Sea, he he takes him to the top of Mount Nebo and, and lets him see the land but he doesn't go in it. Moses dies on Mount Nebo in an unmarked grave. We have no idea where he was buried, primarily because the people would have worshipped him as a god. So thankfully, we we don't know where he's at. But that means then uh, the baton of leadership at the end of the book of Deuteronomy is handed over to our, uh, was a boy when he was a spy. Now uh, an older gentleman having lived for 40 additional years after spying out the land, he becomes now the leader of the people of God. Here's what I'd like to do as we close up our time though. Our text then closes with the people of God on the other side of the Jordan, ready to cross the Jordan and take the land that God promised to Abram. So here's now all of our backstory. The question I wanna ask, maybe an answer, is this. What, what are some things that we might have for us out of this text? One would be this. I think the Lord's methods are interesting. I think the Lord disciplines those he loves. So if, if you've entered into a relationship with God, do not be surprised if God loves you enough that he disciplines you and parents understand this. What's the real sign of love for your kid? That you let your kid do whatever your kid wants? No, that's raising a brat. That's not loving your kid. The true mark of loving your kid is loving them enough to discipline them because you love them. And so the Lord in the wanderings of the people here The Lord disciplines those he loves. And I just want you to know, from a New Testament standpoint, Philippians chapter 2 tells us God is at work in us to willing to work for his good pleasure, which means walking with God doesn't always feel good. Sometimes walking with God hurts because there is Egypt in each of us. And God, by his grace, because he loves us, wants to continually expose the Egypt that's in us. And it might be that you think, hey, everything's great. It's been months I had this issue in my life, but I think I've dealt with that issue, and the Lord just shows you another issue, and then another issue, and then another issue, because sin in some ways is like those onions, there's just layers, you just keep peeling them back, and there's more and more and more, and that is the Christian life, because he loves us. So it never ends, so I I just wanna call out the idea that his methods are different from what you might be comfortable with, because he loves us, he disciplines us, and God is at work in your life, And it might start with low-grade conviction. Ah, Maybe I should deal with that. You're in a situation at work and you exaggerated to make yourself seem better than you deserved, and then the meeting's over and you go, why did I do that? That's the Lord. That's Egypt. What the Bible calls flesh. Maybe it's you. You were at the gym and you looked at somebody who wasn't your spouse and you looked at them again or thought about them again. What's that? That's flesh. That's Egypt. And the Lord is working all of that out in us. And in that, if that's you, and I would encourage you to just confess and repent because not only is God terrifying, which he is, but he is good. His character is gracious and merciful. Second thing I would mention, though, is the Lord's timing. Not just his methods, but timing. Uh, The Lord is slow as it relates to us, but his slowness is purposeful. In fact, Romans 2 says, do not think lightly of the riches or the kindness and the tolerance of the patience of God, not knowing that the kindness of God should lead you to repentance. I've thought often about what if God, when we sinned, instantly responded with some sort of consequence? My college years would have been awful. And many of you have similar stories. I'm thankful for the patience of God, and I hope you are too. His timing is slow, uh, but he never misses. And he never forgets, which means uh, turn to him while he can be found. Turn to him in confession and repentance to be restored before those consequences come. And then finally, I would say this, uh, you you see God being with the people. And that's something that strikes me even for us today. When we talk about our relationship with God, it's not something that's out there. That that like on a Sunday or a Thursday, I I access my relationship with God, and then I just kind of, I kind of leave that there, and and I go about my life. That's not the way it works, and truthfully, that's not where the joy is found. He is with us, and He wants us to be with Him. If you think about it, in the wilderness, these people had daily water, daily food, daily shade in the day with the cloud by the day, daily night light by night, right, with the pillar of fire by night. God provided for them every day, and every day they had to participate with God, gathering manna that God provided for them, gathering the water that God, they had to, with God, work this out every single day with God. And if they chose to try to do life apart from God, they would have, in that context, probably died because they're in the wasteland. And so they just learned to live with God. And I would just say to you, uh, this world is a wasteland. And if we try to go do it without God, uh, there's just no joy in that. There's no surviving in that. There's no human flourishing in that. Human flourishing is found with God. And so as you consider your relationship with God, what would it look like for us day by day to present ourselves to God and learn in the wasteland that is our world to just be with Him, amen? Now look, I I know we covered a lot here tonight, and, and my apologies if you came hoping for a little short devotion, and we ended up covering like four books. Um, but, but the hope would be this, now, now we have an understanding a little bit more of what happened behind the scenes. So when I say to you that Joshua leads the people into the land, you've got context for that, where before that would have meant nothing. And in that, I just I, I pray that this word that tells the story about the people of God in the past encourages maybe us today because there's some gold in there for us, even in our walk with the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for a Bible that is inspired by you and profitable, all of it, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And I'm thankful that you as a faithful God call us to be obedient to you, to respond to how you've revealed yourself to us. And the people of God back then had the law, had the tablets of the 10 Commandments, not much more. We have 66 books of an inspired word. Lord, could we respond to it in love Because you, by your grace, have revealed yourself to us. And so we thank you that your ways are not our ways and you discipline those you love, that your timing is different than ours, but you're faithful to us and that you want to be with us in the journey. And so we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining the Well Community Church Podcast. Be sure to check out thewellcommunity.org or our app, The Well Fresno, for more information on us, ways to connect, service times, and locations.